You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. One through 19. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter, too, during the festival of the unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up! And the chains fell off his wrist. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know that the that sorry. So he went out and followed, and he did not know that what the angel did was really happening. But he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angels and rescued me from Haran's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her, but she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, it's an angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James, the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. At daylight there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Did not expect to see snow and ice this morning, but we made it. I'm Chad, one of the pastors here. So like Aaron said, not a lot of guests, so you probably already know that. Um, understandably so. I did want to make you aware right before I get started um, in this passage, this story uh, in Acts chapter 12, that uh, make you aware that on March 25th, we are gathering together with, uh, with other churches from around the triangle um, and to kick off an intentional period in the two weeks leading up to Easter of, of praying for our city. And so I invite you to join us on March 25th at 9 a.m. We are gathering at the Vintage Church building 
um, with Vintage Church, Imago Day Church, Missio Day, Vision Church, uh, some members of the Point Church in Raleigh, uh, those to name a few. And we are gathering together to uh, start off with some prayer and time in the Word as a group and then to go to spaces around our city to pray specifically in our areas. So like Missio Day is in Southeast Raleigh, they will, they will go spend some time and prayer walk in an area of the city there. And then we will come over here towards Southwest Raleigh. Uh, and there's different routes and maps. I'll send out some additional details, but I wanted to just give you a heads up. In two weeks, March 25th, we're going to be doing that. So um, I invite you to join us and our commitment to prayer and praying for our, sp- our city specifically. And that's two weeks till Easter. Easter 2023, almost here. So, uh, so it moves quickly. Um, as was already mentioned in red, we are in Acts chapter 12. And in Acts chapter 12, we actually come on to a narrative that Luke is writing masterfully. This is an amazing, interesting, intricate story. Um, in which the details of the story are so fascinating that I cannot include them all in our time here or we'd be just sitting here forever, and I know you guys don't want that. Um, that's the, the little side, side note where I just want to go into the weeds of what's going on and the things. But I do want to draw out some of the elements that I think are incredibly important about the story and the actual overall message that Luke wants to convey to the church. He's writing this intentionally. We've talked about this, the way that he orders things. This is not necessarily immediately after what what, uh, came previously, and it's not necessarily in chronological order, but there is a message that he wants us to see. And one of the parts of this story that's going on is that Luke is intentionally transitioning from what has been happening in the Jerusalem church and giving us one last look at a major event in the life of Jerusalem church, and Peter specifically, before he transitions out almost exclusively into the nations, where Paul is carrying forth to the Gentile people the good news of the gospel. And so he is in this story showing us something, he's communicating something about what is happening, giving us a last look, if you will, of how things are happening and continuing to happen in Jerusalem before we turn our face and our attention outward to where the gospel goes forth beyond Jerusalem. And so we get the opportunity to get a look into this together. And my prayer is as we see this that we would have the encouragement for us, the reminder for us of the way that God works in his church with his disciples and in his kingdom. So would you pray with me to those ends before we start? Father, I thank you for the time you give us this morning. I'm thankful that we have the privilege to open up your word. Lord, I ask that you show us from this story, this narrative in in Acts chapter 12. Lord, the encouragement, the reminders, um, even the challenge, the conviction. Lord, that uh, your spirit would work evidently in our, and in our lives to make us look more like Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So as I mentioned, this is a story that's looking one more time at Jerusalem. Uh, It starts off with a bang, and King Herod is violently attacking the church. But what I want to look very specifically at as we walk through these passages are what I've seen as really four reminders about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus and what God's kingdom looks like. Four reminders that I want to walk through with us. And the first reminder that I see here that's not clearly articulated but really throughout the text and previously is that disciples of king jesus are about the work of the kingdom 
They're about the work of the kingdom. When I say about the work of the kingdom, it's because it's the air they breathe. They are carrying on the mission that God has given them out of the gate. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, before Jesus ascends to heaven, he tells his disciples that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he tells them, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So his direction to his disciples before he ascends is go and make disciples. And he follows that up by saying, teach them to observe everything I commanded you. So do you get the follows? He commands them, make disciples, and then tells them to teach others to do what he commands, which is make disciples. So then therefore, if we are disciples of Jesus, just as in this ancient Acts church, we should be about the mission of the kingdom, the work of the kingdom. We would carry that on and carry it out. You can see in this, the commitment of the Jerusalem church because as they are doing the work, they are clearly stirring up the local authorities where King Herod gets violent with them and arrests them. The Jews are pleased with King Herod to do this. And the church itself, even at the end of verse 5, is praying fervently to God for Peter. They're invested, and they're praying for his release, praying for him to die well. We don't know, but they're praying fervently is what it says. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, at the beginning of this entire narrative, it also records that Jesus tells them that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on them, and that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so in this look, we see that beginning portion of it where they're being witnesses faithfully in Jerusalem, and then Luke's going to turn us to the ends of the earth. So the disciples of King, of King Jesus are about the work of the kingdom. That's the first reminder. I'm not going a whole lot in depth in there. I just want to tell us, are we about the works of the kingdom? Honestly, that, when we planted this church, that's part of the reason we want to be about the works of the of the kingdom. We don't want to be a place we love to have you visit. But just like we see these, these invested members of the church praying fervently for Peter, there is a min- there's a membership here that we have. We elevate that on purpose because we want it to be clear that there's a call, there's a commitment to one another and to the mission. And they were all in. You can't get any more all in than giving your life. And so in this look, we see a picture in Jerusalem of this church working together and being about the work of the kingdom. The second reminder that we see here is this. As you're about that kingdom work, I don't want you to be deceived because the kingdom in this world is going to oppose the kingdom of the God all the time. I said that the kingdom of this world is going to oppose the kingdom of God, not the God. I mean, you could say that, but it just came out. So look at verse 1 through 3. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. Okay, here's a point in which I want to take a moment to give you a little background on Herod. Because here is actually, in this entire passage, if you will, when we look forward to the end of this, Herod kind of bookends this story. He's the beginning and he's the end. He violently attacks and then he dies. 
And so he's a centerpiece. He's actually set up in contrast. He's a representative, if you will, of the kingdom of this world in the story, opposing the work of the kingdom of God. And, and so I want us to understand what is in King Herod's mind when he all of a sudden, it seems out of the blue, violently attacks some who belong to the church. Now, if you are familiar at all with any of your Bible, you probably have heard the name Herod multiple times throughout the text. They're not all the same Herod, just in case you're wondering. The Herod, the first one we probably saw, shows up when Jesus is born. He's known as Herod the Great. He's King Herod, Herod the Great. He shows up on the scene. He is angry that he finds out that this supposed king is being born. In the, in the Christmas story, if you're familiar with this, and it goes on to say that when he doesn't get his way with the wise men, when they don't tell him where Jesus is, where this new king is, he goes and kills every baby boy under two years old. He tries to make sure he wipes them out. I mean, how power hungry do you have to be when you decide, you know what, let's just go ahead and kill every kid under two, every boy. And that was his, that's his, his story, if you will. That's his narrative. That's him. He wanted to maintain power. And it goes on from there because he also had his sons and his family killed just to make sure they didn't take over. So Herod the Great is the grandfather of this Herod. Okay? Herod Agrippa I. And Herod Agrippa I sees his uncles and his family being killed by his grandfather and he, for power, and he gets sent to school in Rome, be trained up as a good leader, right? He goes to get sent to the best schooling with the best people. He meets friends there. He makes friends there, and he makes friends with a guy named Caligula. Caligula becomes emperor. He's got a terrible history, awful history. Matter of fact, people hated him there and had him murdered, but because he was friends with Caligula, he got a little pat on the back, and he got put in charge of an area that we see now around the area of Judea. But when Caligula gets murdered, because for power, Herod Agrippa, this Herod, works behind the scenes to help get his son, Claudius. We heard about him last week. Claudius become emperor. Remember Claudius was scared? He was scared of all of it. He saw his, his dad get killed. He's like, I don't want to get the throne. I don't want to do it. Herod helps him get to power. And as a result, this King Herod is gifted all of Judea, all of the area, and he becomes the king in the area. He's given it as a gift because, you know what, he's political. He's looking for power. He's looking for opportunity. But here's the catch. He was given all that space, but if you're familiar with history, especially in the Greco-Roman world, your power is very loosely held. You could lose it. You just make the wrong people mad. I mean, look at it. We just saw the former Herod killed his kids, Caligula, the former emperor, was murdered because they didn't want him there. So King Herod knows very well there's a crosshairs on his back. Matter of fact, he was put in place by the unpopular emperor. So Rome, there's not a lot of love from Rome. So what does he turn his attention to? He wants to make sure the people he's ruling over love him. So he goes after James and Peter. Because the local Jews seem to have a problem with this new Christian thing. Let's see if they like it if I do something about it. He kills James. And what does the text tell us? He executed James, John's brother, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too. It's a power play. He could care less what James and, John, what James and Peter are doing. 
but he knows that the Jews like it. So let's make this a thing because I want to collect power where I am. I want to have position. I want to have authority. I want to please these people because in pleasing them, I get to keep my place. And that's the, that is ultimately, in most ways, the pursuit of the world. What is it that I want to gain? What are the opportunities that I want to pursue? What are the things that this world can offer me? And how do I get them? And if I'm being super honest, that I'm not suggesting that everybody who's of the world is necessarily ready to kill their kids for it. Okay? I'm just telling you that this is the extent to some will go in pursuit for power, in pursuit of, of, of position, pleasing people. And, and it would be wrong to deny that we don't see that in the world today. That it happens, that people will be hungry for that power, for that money, for the things the world has to offer and go to any ends to achieve it. And unfortunately, in this circumstance, James is in the crosshairs. He bites the bullet. He's put to death. And when he's put to death, James, John's brother, we know him, uh, we might be familiar uh, uh, with him from being one of the sons of thunder that followed after Jesus, okay? There's another James that comes up later, by the way, not the same one. He doesn't resurrect. He passes. We also have James, the brother of Jesus. So he puts James to death, and then he arrests Peter, too. And he does it during the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And that's not a small thing, either. It comes right after Passover. It's a full week of celebration. And there's a lot of people around, so it's very visible. He's making a statement. He's saying, okay, I'm after this group. Jews, do you see me? Look what I'm doing. And there was a thing. There was a, I'm sorry, I'm sidetracked a little bit, but it's, it plays, plays in there. There, there was a, a mad TV show used to be popular when I was little, and there was a guy named Stuart on there, and he used to say, look what I can do. Like, he was like a kid who just wanted everybody to watch him. I'm getting some laughs. People know what I'm talking about. And he would just do something dumb, be like, look what I can do, and, like, throw his foot out. And anyway, he was supposed to be a toddler. And it's like, what Herod's doing? He was like, look what I'm doing, Jews. I'm arresting these people. And then at the same time, he's also sending a message to the Christians because he's going after some of their major Jerusalem leaders, Peter and James. And he's telling them, you don't want to mess with me. So he's got two things at play. This guy's a power player. He's a politician. And then what happens after that? After the arrest, he puts him in prison, and he assigns four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was praying fervently to God for him. So what is his intention? Well, I'm going to make a show of arresting Peter, but I'm going to respect the Jewish holiday and I'll wait till Passover's over to bring him out and do what? Make a public spectacle of Peter because I want you to see what I'm going to do with him. So it doesn't look good for Peter. There's a plan in place and a direction he's going and he probably is fully aware after looking at James to know what's going to happen to him, or at least intended. So when we look at this, we see Herod, and he's kind of set up as the enemy, the bad guy. But I'm also reminded, and I want us to remember, that Paul later says in Ephesians that it's not just flesh and blood that we're wrestling and fighting against. Though Herod is the tip of the spear, if you will, he's the one that's out front in the face of opposition to the church in this scenario, that Paul tells us that we need to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil deceiver, the accuser. Why? Because verse 12 of Ephesians 6 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, against spiritual forces in the heavens. 
The reminder for us is this. If the kingdom of God, that good news of Jesus Christ is going forth, if we are about the work of the kingdom, we should expect that the enemies of God will oppose it. And what Paul reminds us here, and what we even see in the background with Herod, is that he might be the face of this, but we can always expect opposition of every kind. That, that Herod is not a neutral player here. His greed, his desire for power makes him a willing participant. But he's just being used by the enemies of God to do their will. To whatever deception he might believe, that he thinks this is going to be advantageous to him, that he's going to make gain, he puts to death James and he goes after Peter because he wants to do those things. But the enemies of God, those spirits, those evil forces, those ones at work, the ones whispering in our ear and deceiving the nations are getting their way too because they feel like they're opposing the kingdom. And they are. I mean, the enemies of God are out there to do things. Imagine, if you will, they're trying to destroy, they're trying to discourage, they're trying to distress. How discouraging would it be to see James be put to death? How discouraging to see Peter arrested? How distressing is it for the church that's sitting back in this home praying fervently and thinking there's probably not good odds he's making it out of this? I mean, they believe in God's power, they believe in Christ, but it doesn't look like good odds. The enemy, brothers and sisters, the enemy will use every means available to discourage you, to destroy you, to distress you, to turn you away from the mission. And so my encouragement for you is this. If you are taking fire, if you are feeling the pain and stress and discouragement, I'm not saying it's easy, but it doesn't mean you're in the wrong place. Often it means you're doing the right work. Because they're about the work of the kingdom and they're facing head-on opposition. I I remind myself time after time whenever I feel discouraged, whenever something doesn't quite go the way. Look, I could come in this morning and say, hey, it's icy, it's snowy, it's too early. I mean, I did. I told Aaron, I said, I thought maybe you could just pull up an old sermon. I'll just get a little bit more bedtime. That's a light thing compared to what James and Peter are going through, believe me. But some of you in here have faced near difficult circumstances in your life and probably felt as near as stress and discouragement. The things don't just seem to go the way you want to plan. You've prayed, you've prayed, you've prayed fervently over this, and it's not working together like you thought it would. My encouragement to you is this if you are following in obedience, after the Father, if your work and your service and your time is faithfully within your ability trying to give yourself over to the work of the kingdom as best you can, there is an abundance of grace in Christ and you can expect opposition. You can expect the enemy to not want the kingdom to go forward. And that, that looks at the next reminder we have after this. Despite the fact that the enemies, the kingdom of this world is in opposition to the kingdom of God, disciples can trust their king. They could trust their king. Look at this story again. Look at the the verses 1 through 5. They can trust him with every outcome. Verses 1 through 5. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church. And he did what? He executed James, John's brother with the sword. 
when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. And after that arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Now here's we have two different leaders in the church and two different outcomes. Because we read ahead and we saw that James is executed and Peter is rescued. That's what I titled this. James is martyred, the death of James and the rescue of Peter. Two different outcomes for two different leaders. James and John were known as the sons of thunder, I've already mentioned. They're known for their zeal. Actually, tradition speaks of his death, his martyrdom, and talks about him being a zealous witness all the way to the end. The story goes that he was witnessing to and even converted his guard that was taking him to his execution. And that his guard was killed with him. So he is being faithful. He is being a witness. But Luke doesn't dwell on the death of James. He just says it in passing. He just says James was killed. James, James, one of the 12. It's a big deal. It's just like a half a verse. They took James and killed him. And then we move on. And he moves on because James doesn't want to dwell there. He wants to put the death of James in contrast to Peter's rescue. He wants to show us in here that there's no indication inside or outside of this narrative that James did anything wrong to die or that Peter did anything particularly right to be freed. Neither. And what I want us to realize that we can trust the Lord. We can trust him with every outcome, no matter what it is. Because there are some satanic, I'm using that word on purpose, satanic teachings, deceiving, accusational teachings that would at least suggest that the reason James didn't survive was because he lacked the faith of Peter. They wouldn't say that about this passage outright, but that's at least the indication. I have heard people who claim to be ministers of the gospel who have wives suffering and dying from cancer still preaching and teaching that they just have to have enough faith to defeat the cancer. And while we might, we believe, we do not preach that here, in case you're wondering, and I don't think you believe that or would verbalize that, some of us still wrestle with, with the fact that we are in circumstances and wonder, is it because we lack faith? Is it because we don't trust enough? Is it maybe because Jesus isn't, God isn't loving me enough here? That we would be in a circumstance and doubt God's love regardless of what's happening. And my encouragement from this passage, looking at James, he dies. Peter is rescued. No matter the outcome, God is faithful to you. He loves you. He gave his son for you. And even if you get the job, you don't get the job. You lose a loved one or they survive. He is still faithful and loving and we can trust him. If we go to this new building and it blows up and all of a sudden one of us becomes like Barnabas, you know, Micah just starts on a preaching tour and we just like overflow the building. Or if we get there and we struggle, we face challenges and we've done the best we can to pray and consider where God would lead us and it just doesn't come through the way we hoped and prayed and led into God is still faithful. 
is still trustworthy. And we can trust him. Look at the contrast between Herod and Peter. The fact that Herod's trust is entirely in this world. He is... He is king over Judea, but he's ruling in fear. He's put all his hope in keeping his power and pleasing others and holding on to his position, but he is literally a slave to that fear that something might happen, that he might lose it. And then you look at Peter, who is actually in chains, and he's at peace, he's content. He's not king of anything, but his confidence is in King Jesus. He knows what happened to James. He knows his likely fate. But look in the preceding verses. He is fast asleep. You even hear struggle with sleep sometimes at night because you got too much on your mind? It's the night before his execution. And he is so fast asleep that when an angel shows up and light fills the room, he has to kick him to wake him up. He's he's chained between two guards. You put me in a cold room, I have a hard time going to sleep. And he is fast asleep. It's like Jesus when he was in the boat. The story is about the storm and all the disciples are panicking because they think they're going to drown. They think the ship's going to turn over. And what's Jesus doing? He's in the bottom of the boat fast asleep. And they have to wake him up. Hey, Jesus, listen, I know you probably sleep through hurricanes normally, but you got a situation. It's the same thing with Peter. Though he's in chains in this world, he is free in Christ. And he knows he can trust him. No matter what happens the next day. Hey, it's like, man, I could end up like James. But I know who I serve. And he is faithful. The second reminder, I take it back, that we're in this reminder of disciples can trust their King Jesus. Not only can we trust him with every outcome, but we can believe him to do the unbelievable. We read that passage in Ephesians where he can do far more than we can ever ask or think. This passage, this story is actually set up to show us the miraculous rescue of Peter. Look at it as we see at the end of this that the, the once he's arrested and once he is put in prison, that he is bound with two chains. It says that there are four squads of four soldiers, each set to guard him. Remember, he's trying to please the Sanhedrin. It's probably the Sanhedrin who told him, hey, last time we put this guy in jail, he got out somehow. So you want to put some extra guards here. He has literally four guards per rotation. It was a typical Roman strategy of overnight guarding every three hours just so they can be the most alert. Two of them are standing out front. Two of them are tied to the prisoner. We're not letting him go tonight. Why? Herod wants to make a show tomorrow. We can't make this, have this go wrong. The disciples are praying fervently. They're praying earnestly for him, but the stage is actually set for Peter's certain death. They wanted to make a public spectacle. Herod wants to gain favor with the Jews, so he's waiting until after Passover. He's got him bound between two guards. And what happens in verse 7? Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell, striking Peter on the face. I'm sorry, striking Peter on the side. He woke him up and said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrist. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. 
Luke's writing this to help bring something to our remembrance. We studied, um, we studied Exodus sometime back. Seems like a long time ago, right? And the imagery here is that late night quick exit from, from, from Egypt. That, that the angel shows up and says, we're out of here, let's go. Put your stuff on, wrap it up, put your shoes on, we're getting out of here. It's, it's trying to draw our attention and reminder that God works in miraculous ways just like he did in Exodus. He continues to save and free his people. And in Exodus, we see that he takes them and frees them miraculously from Egypt. He leads them out quickly and he takes them out to provide for them in the wilderness. It's his provision. It's his, it's his support. It's his love. It's his unbelievable, miraculous salvation of his people. And so Peter runs out, follows after. He's still kind of dazed. Verse 9, he went out and he followed and he did not know what the angel did was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Okay, anybody ever sleepwalk? Yeah, okay. I, I can remember one time, so that doesn't mean there wasn't others, but I can remember one. I don't think I do it all the time. I would have been strapped in bed probably. I remember one time that I felt like it was a sleepwalk. But my, mother, my mother's here, if you want to ask her. Um, she's with us today. Um, this is why I'm pointing over here. Maybe she knows. Uh, I was at the beach. I don't know why. At the va- on vacation, I decided to do this. And I don't remember getting there, but I remember waking up, standing in the door to my aunt and uncle's bedroom. I wasn't sleeping in there. I was just standing there. And all I remember is, like, I'm waking up because they're like, Chad? Is that, is that you? Chad? I'm like, and all I remember saying is, I'm confused. <laughs> and so I turned around, and it was like flashes. I'm walking back to my bed. I remember getting in the bed. The next morning, it was one of those things where I was like, did, did, that, did that happen? <laughs> did I do? Was I standing? And a matter of fact, I know it did because my uncle, who's never at a loss of words and sarcasm, he, he, when I was walking away from his bedroom, he said, hey, somebody might want to check on him. Doesn't end up in the ocean. <laughs> And then when I got to breakfast, he was like, sleep well? <laughs> Appreciate you coming to visit last night. <laughs> so I kind of can relate and think, like Peter just got woken, jolted out of sleep. He already had a vision with Cornelius. He's like, is this really happening? What's going on? Sure, I'll put on my, my shoes. Okay, sure. And it says that he passed the first and the second guards. He's walking by the guards. You can believe, if you're sitting there walking past guards, are you thinking, I don't know, is this really going on? There's no way. He gets to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them by themselves. They went outside and they passed one street and suddenly the angel left him. The indication here is he's actually in a tower that Paul is locked in later because it's right on the edge of town. There's a gate to the city and there's a gate out into the outside. And so he's walking through the iron gate into the city. And it says in verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. So Peter gets led out. He's being led out and he's delusional. I have, Peter's not escaping. If he feels like he's sleepwalking, he's not doing the work. No one has ever sleepwalked their own escape. Well, maybe. I'm a, maybe I'll, I didn't look up the history on it. But odds are you don't sleepwalk out of prison. Okay? 
all right? He's being fully, wholly rescued by God's miraculous, unbelievable work. And he's showing us in this that there's ways, it's not a message that says, hey, just expect if you're in trouble, there's an angel that's going to show up and just lead you out. But rather, God is able to do far above we can imagine. Do you think Peter saw that coming? Do you think you could ever be in a situation where you could never see a way out, yet God can still work? He goes out of this space and all of a sudden comes to himself and he goes, whoa, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and he's rescued me. Maybe you have that same experience. Maybe you've been to an unbelievable point in your life and yet God did something miraculous and you came out the other side all of a sudden days thinking, man, God was so faithful. I never saw that. How did that ever work out? I would never have planned that. And yet he does the unbelievable. I can even look around the room and be reminded and think of the ways God's worked in some of your lives. And we can believe that he'll do the unbelievable. And the first place place that Peter goes is to the home of John, who was called Mark. This is Luke's way of introducing us to a character that's going to show up later. But it's also a reminder that this must be a place that the church is regularly meeting. Because why is Peter in the first thought going to go to this house unless he knew that they always assembled there? He's been in prison. He knocked at the door, the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She, re- she recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. I think it's funny. It's a, almost a humorous irony that Peter has literally walked through every locked gate past enemy guards, and the last one is left locked because his, his fellow church people are so excited and just run away. They're like, oh, I'm so excited, and they leave him out in the streets. I mean, imagine, there's a little comedy. He's standing like, guys, what's up? And Rhoda, by the way, that many uh, female servants, young ladies were often the ones tending the gate. And Rhoda shows up, and it's a common name. It actually means Rosebush. Well, fun fact. See, I told you there's lots of fun facts here. Rosebush hears him outside, and Rhoda says, whoa, this Peter. And she runs inside and leaves him. Well, the first thing she does when she gets to the rest of them, they said, you're out of your mind. She kept insisting that it was true. And her, their response, man, look, it's his angel. They said, look, Rosebush, it's no way. Just saying. I know you're really excited. You want to see him. It's probably his angel. And this actually comes from a Jewish tradition of, of, of believing that there's a guardian angel for each one of us. One that actually resembles us, if you will, that typically hangs around and shows up after your death. So so the underlying message is they're praying fervently, but it's almost like we're just praying he dies well because he's probably dead already. And when they came and she told them that he's at the gate, they said, no, you're crazy. It's probably just his angel. 16, as any of us would do, Peter was persistent because we're locked outside. However, he kept on knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him and they were absolutely amazed. God does amazing things, even blowing away the church. Look, imagine this, like the only thing not sealing the deal, like not getting Peter out of the streets and into safety, is there this doubting? I mean, listen, God does a lot of stuff. I mean, I know Jesus died for our sins, but come on, he's not really out there. 
Just having the faith that God can do the unbelievable and trusting him to work things out in ways we never could imagine. So what does Peter do? He comes to his people. He motions them with his hand to be silent. He describes to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he tells them to go to James and the brothers. And, and he left and went to another place. Now, just I think it's important to look at this and see that Peter's not being dumb, if you will. Maybe that's the wrong term for that. He has faith in God to provide, but he's also using the wisdom that God gives. He's not staying in Jerusalem. There's a measure of God giving us our wisdom to do what's right because he knows what's coming next. And what happened when Herod wakes up is what? There's a great commotion among the soldiers as to what became of Peter. And after Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. He's, he's ticked off. Often whatever was intended for the prisoner is what happens to the guards if he gets out. So they executed them. And Peter, knowing that's likely the case, he informs them, says, pass the word to James, but guys, I'm out. Why? I don't want them to find me here, A. I don't want them to find me with you because I put you in danger. I'm moving on. And we can use our same wisdom. Even we trust God to do unbelievable things, we can use our wisdom God gives us to do right, to pursue what's good, to use that wisdom in a godly way. I, I use this example from time to time. You don't pray every day on whether you should eat that day. You do it. Because God has created you to need that sustenance. There's wisdom in taking care and stewarding our bodies. And we don't often just use every minute detail. Peter does this here. He says, I'm going to go somewhere else. And he moves on. So we see God do unbelievable things. We can trust him with all the outcomes. We can trust him to do unbelievable things. But we finally can entrust him with final justice. Because the rest of this story goes on with Herod in verse 20. Herod had been very angry and the people of Tyre and Sidon. He'd been mad at them. They're people by the ocean. He apparently had a little feud going on with this group over here. So together they presented themselves before him after winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom. That's often someone who's just a close confidant, a close servant. They asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. There's a, there's a tension. There's a feud with Tyre and Sidon. They want to have peace because they know they're dependent on King Herod for food. For their, for their country, so they come with the intention of trying to win him over, and they go through a trusted guard, Blastus, or a trusted servant. 21, on an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. The assembled people began to shout, it's the voice of God and not of a man. Verse 23, at once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died so why all of a sudden is Herod dead well it tells us why this doesn't happen right away by the way this doesn't happen immediately after the reason I say we can entrust we can entrust God with final justice is that the church saw this as God's judgment righteous judgment on Herod this doesn't happen in Jerusalem it happens when he goes down to Caesarea it happens in a place separate, but it happens for the specific reason that is mentioned in verse 23, because he did not give glory to God. We actually have an account of this from the historian, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus. He talks about this being a case where, where Herod actually shows up in silver robes and he shines bright like the sun. And everyone there says, this guy's like a god, he's not a man. And he says that Herod never corrects them and he never eggs them on, he just soaks it in. And then Herod fell down with a stomach issue and he dies within five days. 
So in this particular case, we see that God handles the justice on Herod. The church doesn't have to do it. When you're wronged, when you find difficulty, when you find challenges, we don't need to rush to find a reason or a way to justify ourselves, because we can trust justice to the Lord. And that's exactly what happens with Herod. And ultimately, final justice doesn't always come in this lifetime. We see an account of that with Herod here, but we know ultimately that in the end, God makes all things right. So even if we don't think someone gets what they deserve, or well, we can also praise God that we don't get what we deserve. We don't have to seek justice on behalf of ourselves. We can trust that to the Lord. And finally, now the fourth reminder in verses 24 through the end of the chapter in 25 says that God's kingdom will always advance. It always advances. Verse 24, but the word of God spread and multiplied. And after they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. We see John Mark again in this point. I'm often somewhat perplexed when we know, when we as believers say that we believe Christ has died for our sin, we trust that he has resurrected, conquering death and sin, and that he has promised for his people new life in him. And then we still have a pessimistic outlook on the world. Here's what I mean by that. There are times as a church that we can hear or even continue to repeat ourselves a defeated attitude about how the world is going at any given time. Like it's getting darker and darker and bleaker and bleaker. And believe me, we should be discouraged or we should be grieved by the pain in this world. But my encouragement to you is what Luke is trying to show. Despite the opposition of the kingdom of this world, verse 24, the word of God spread and multiplied. There's no halting God's kingdom. There's no halting Christ's rule. There is no halting of his advance. There is no halting of his mission, his purpose. There's no stopping that. We are literally, we can trust Christ as king because we know he conquers all. He literally is in charge. And though it might seem bleak today, though we might see things that are evil in this world, that's just the enemy in the death throes. Like literally a cornered, scared, worried enemy is trying to do what they can to stop the church and they're not going to win. They literally will not win. That word is used way too much nowadays, by the way, literally. But I'm saying it now because it literally they will not win. There is no chance that they defeat Christ. He's already won the victory on the cross. He's already won the victory in the grave and in resurrection. In this life, we have the opportunity to be about the work of God's kingdom, to steward our time, our talents, our treasure, and we can trust the King Jesus who is with us through it all because we know he has the victory and we can follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your word. Thank you for the way that you show yourself through Peter and the way that you're faithful, God, to the church throughout history. And Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by this word we'd be encouraged by your spirit and we would grow to look more and more like jesus that we would have more confidence day after day in you that we would trust you 
no matter the outcome of our life, that we would believe that you can do the absolutely unbelievable in this life, that we would entrust justice to you, that you are the one who makes all things right in the end, and Lord, that we would continue to see the gospel advance in our lifetime, that we would see it before our eyes and we would celebrate and praise you for it. And I ask all this in Christ's name, amen.